You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Get this set up here. We are wrapping up our uh, uh, January series. We always do a, a series in January where we have a concert of prayer, uh, which we did uh, four weeks ago now, and uh, we just spend the whole service in prayer. It's a very sweet time. Then we want to take a look at three kind of hot button subjects. We took a look at sanctity of life, the first um, first week, uh, and then we took a look at last week, sanctity of marriage, and um, what is it that God calls us to be as believers. And today we're looking at the hot button subject of race and the gospel. Last week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, and it's one of those you know you uh, you can celebrate those kind of federal holidays in one of two ways, right? You can just either just take the day off, because they gave you the day off if you work for the federal government, or if you're a school employee, you just tell people, Happy Martin Luther King Day, and go about your business. Um, or you can actually dig into the why was this holiday put into place, and what was the purpose behind it. Um, those are always, That's always interesting to do that, especially if you're a history nerd. Columbus Day is one of those that obviously has very divisive nature because Christopher Columbus was not a great guy and did not have a, a good example of things, but that's actually not, he himself is actually not why they made it a holiday. So I'd encourage you to take a look at the history of even why that was the case. But when we look at um, Martin Luther King, obviously the, the reason that that is a, a federal holiday is the issue of racial injustice that existed uh, in the United States uh, after the Civil War and the segregation that took place. Uh, it's pretty remarkable when you think of the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, killed when he was 39 years old. So like everything that we know about him and his accomplishments and all that before he turned 40 pretty a remarkable thing to think about. And as we think of Martin Luther King and as we think of uh, the, the racial tension that still exists in a number of facets across the United States, um, you know, of course, we're familiar with uh, the news stories of police brutality, like with George Floyd and those, uh, and it just seems like they just keep coming, right? Like there's just more and more of them every, uh, every other week, almost seems like there's some new uh, event that's taken place that's captured the news's attention and draws us into it and there's protests and there's rallies and all of those kind of things and we're, uh, you know, the more and more we hear about the, the how things played out and the story behind them and we look at it and we go, it's, it's unjust, it shouldn't be this way and there's things that are broken and unfortunately for a lot of us it does produce what I think we could call injustice fatigue. It's kind of like compassion fatigue if you've ever been in a role where you had to care deeply about people's decisions that were sometimes and oftentimes bad decisions and they had bad impacts and after a while of caring so much and caring so much you get to the point where you're just tired of caring. You don't want to care anymore. You begin to build up a, uh, a callus to it and stand against it. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, because of the 24-hour news cycle that we live in today where uh, CNN and others have to have something to capture your attention and have to get you in there, uh, those kind of things that just get blasted again and again and again um, become issues that we lose a sense of human compassion for, 
If we learned anything in sanctity of life and sanctity of marriage, it's the nature that we are people and we ought to see each other as that. And the moment that we lose that is the moment that we lose our ability to actually be who God made us to be in this world. Now, of course, injustice fatigue only happens so long as the injustice is not happening to us. Right? If the injustice is happening to us, we can stay pretty fiery about it. If you're a school employee and you find out that other teachers in your department are getting a raise or a bonus or getting to go on a trip or something and you're not, well, obviously there's some feelings that go along with that and you're not just like, well, whatever. You know, you're like, no, what is the deal? You know, you're going to feel the injustice of that. Or if there is racial discrimination or gender discrimination or class uh, discrimination or whatever that takes place against you personally, you you are going to feel that and you are going to respond to that and you are going to feel that uh, very, very passionately. The issue of justice as it flows throughout Scripture is a huge theme uh, throughout the entirety of Scripture. Uh, But this morning I want us to take a look at um, a very familiar story but through what I think for you will probably be a very different lens than you have ever seen it before. In fact, I would would probably... uh, you know, if it was a Christian thing to do to wager, that we're going to take a look at uh, a passage of Scripture you're very familiar with, and you're going to see something that you have never seen in it before, or at least that is uh, my hope. And the question we're going to ask this morning is, when is the first time in the Bible that we see uh, the allusion to people experiencing injustice by other people. When is the first time in the Bible that the Bible alludes to human injustice towards each other? And injustice, I'm, I'm meaning that in the sense of subjecting one's will upon another person, not killing somebody else. That would just be Cain and Abel. He is exerting his will on that, but he has no more will on the other side of that. He's dead, right? So what does it look like for them to be one subjecting another to the will Um, of someone else. And this doesn't probably come from where you would expect, but uh, I will give this caveat. You're going to have to bear with me for a moment as we play this out because it's not just one of those we're going to read it and there it is and boom, there you go. Uh, It's there. So just bear with me uh, on this. We're going to read Genesis chapter 11 starting in verse 1 and going all the way through verse 9. And you're going to see a very familiar story. Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 begins this way, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top reaches into the heavens, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language. And that is why, or that is what, uh, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad, and from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. One language, one people. This, of course, is the story of the Tower of Babel. It's a, um, an absolutely famous critical story in the, the, the narrative of Scripture. Um, but there's one thing about when you read in Old Testament stories, um, it's very easy to read Old Testament stories as just that, a, a story. Like a uh, you know an episode uh, that is you know in and of itself. You got David and Goliath. You got the table, Tower of uh, Bathsheba. You've got uh, Balaam and his donkey. Right, these kind of signature Old Testament stories that just kind of stand alone and they do their own thing. And we don't really see them in light of the grand narrative, the grand story of Scripture. And it is one of those things that I really want us to understand is that the story of Scripture is in fact that. It is one story tying God's redemptive plan to mankind through a people uh, to redeem all nations and all peoples that have rebelled against Him back to Himself. And so when we read stories, and especially when we read stories in Scripture that just seem like one-offs, like they're just very random, it seems almost kind of like, what in the world is that there for? We ought to pay attention to those because they have something bigger to teach us, something broader to help us in. Genesis chapter 10 uh, is one of those chapters that's uh, generally if you're doing your Bible reading plan and you get to that and you begin to realize what the chapter is, if you're just honest, those are the ones you usually skip over. Like the, the genealogy kind of uh, you know, name and place and son and on and you just kind of, okay, where does that, okay, now we're picking back up in the story and you just kind of skip over those kind of things. And then right after this passage that we just read, you get another genealogy and this one's a little bit more specific. It reads much kind of like the genealogy towards the beginning of Genesis where it talks about uh, Adam was this old and when he was this old then he had this son and and then he lived this many years and he died and there's this pattern of that and we see that uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 11 starting in verse 10 and it goes on a little ways and has a genealogy. So we have a genealogy and a genealogy and in the middle of that genealogy is this story of Babel. And oftentimes, this story of Babel is uh, thrown out there as just a very simple thing of like, well, this is where culture came from. Or this is, uh, this is how language developed in the world. We obviously, you know, if you, you ever um, you know, get on YouTube and, uh, and just listen to, uh, especially if you can find, there's YouTube channels that have like um, uh, languages of the world that have a thousand or less speakers that are still in the world of distinct languages. And there's some of those that are just fascinating to listen to how the people uh, speak. So you think of like England. Uh, How many of you guys have ever heard of the language of Welsh? It's there in England. We think of England as English. They speak English. But there's people that speak Welsh, which is nothing at all like English. 
uh, or the, uh, I can't remember the name of the tribe in, uh, in Africa, but their language is clicks and whistles. Uh, and it's fascinating, fascinating to listen to. And so we, in modern day times, as we read the scriptures and we see those kind of things, we go, well, how did that, I mean, how did you get such vast diversity in those kind of things? And we point back to Babel, and there it is, because we see there's language and there's confusion and all this kind of stuff, and away and away it goes. But the question of Babel is often asked, what was it that God was upset about when Babel took place? What was it that God looked at it and said, no, that ain't happening on my watch. We're going to do something about that. And He comes down and He does this miracle of confusing their language such that they give up the, the whole enterprise and they walk away. A number of people have looked at that and they have uh, argued that what, what it was was that it was God is against the advancement of technology. That they invented this new way of building bricks uh, and it was too advanced for their time and God was against that, so he wanted to stop them um, from doing that. And you may have uh, you may have heard that. Uh, some people use this story, this passage, to look at uh, ideas like uh, if you think of, if you hear of anybody that talks um, in terms of like uh, end times things and being worried about there being a one world order or one world government or that kind of a, a, a an extreme unity uh, in that kind of a thing. They say, see, God was against uh, that that they were too united with each other. They were two together and he didn't want that so he had to enact on that. Um, But the the reality of it is it doesn't explicitly say what it was about it that was God was against. There's nowhere in the text that it says this is why God said explicitly this is what uh, was wrong. And so we have to look a little bit deeper into the, the context in which the Scriptures lay out now, one of these things that is interesting is that we see in um, uh, at the beginning of chapter 11 of verse 1, uh, he says this statement, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, or few words, uh, in, their, in their understanding of things. It, when we read this, when it says now... Again, think like uh, when you're reading genealogy, it's like you're uh, in Google Earth, right? And you're looking at it and you see the whole sphere of the globe. You see the curvature, you see everything, right? But when you're looking at Google Earth from there, you, you don't see the nuance of town. You don't see construction. You don't see people. You just see the, the grand scheme of things. And when oftentimes the Bible will have passages of Scripture where it's that kind of a view. It's just this gigantic overarching view. And then all of a sudden it'll zoom, zoom down into this. You're standing on the street corner and you can see the doorknob on the little shop and the person pushing their cart and all of those kind of things. That's exactly what is happening here. But he emphasized when he says now, it's zooming all the way down in because chapter 10 is that that 30,000 kind of foot view. But here's something I want you to see in this as he describes this. In Genesis chapter 10, now he says in, in chapter 11 verse 1, this is what I'm saying, you've got to bear with me on this, follow me on this. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It sounds very specific for him to say that. But take a look in chapter 10 and look at uh, verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, the sons who were born to them after the flood. Now look down at verse 5. 
So the first, the first ones are the sons of Japheth, verse 2, 3, and 4. Verse 5, From these the coastlands of the nations were, uh, were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, according to their nations. Now look at verse 20. So that's, that's Japheth. Then he goes to Ham in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham. So all the way from 6 all the way down to 20. Uh, these are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and by their nations. And then look down at verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by the nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So, he's tying us back into the bigger story narrative. Remember, God brought judgment on the earth, and He told Noah... That of all the people on the earth, you're the only one that's still listening to who I am. I'm going to start clean. I'm going to flood the whole earth, build the ark. You can take your three sons and their wives, your wife onto the ark and all the animals, and I'm going to start over with you. And from that, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their descendants, their kids, as they scattered out and abroad. Genesis chapter 10 is the, uh, known as the listing of the nations, and it described these uh, places and where they went and these uh, ancient people groups that existed there that we have found archaeological uh, evidence for that they were in those places in those kind of times. <clears throat> Uh, and so this listing of the nations is the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham. And then in verse 21... Uh, as it gives those, it just gives it, uh, here's Japheth, here's Ham, and then in verse 21, it, it changes the way that it says it. Uh, it doesn't just say the sons of Ham, it says the sons of Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. It breaks the cycle of it. And again, when you're reading Scripture, if there's a pattern of things... That's significant. They're saying the same. They, they follow a Jewish pattern of the way that they write. And if they break that pattern, there's something in that, the breaking of that pattern, that is intended for you to go, why did they do that? Why, do, why, do we, why, sh, why did they break the pattern of it? And the pattern of it was, he didn't just say, let me tell you, this is, this is who he is and this is his kids. He specifically says, even before he says his order of his own birth, this is Shem, the, the father of Elam, uh, or sorry, the father of Eber, the older brother of Japheth, and then we're going to list all of his other kids. Why did he say that? Why to Shem also the father of Eber? When Hebrew, Eber uh, is... Um, spelled phonetically the same way that you spell Hebrew. It's the root and the direct lineage of the Hebrew people. So when we're reading this, it's him pointing back to them and saying, where did we come from? And they can say, we came from Eber, son of Shem, son of Noah, and on it goes back there. That's their lineage. That's their tie. And that's why in Genesis chapter 10, that's pointed out as something that is very significant. That it is the, the pinnacle for them that ties them to their personal identity. But it's not just that. It's that he says, of Eber, 
Either Eber fathered somebody by the name of Peleg. How would you like to have that as a first name? Peleg. If you guys are looking for baby names, Peleg. It's, it's, it's out there, right? Uh, and it says that in verse, uh, what, 25? Uh, it says, The two sons were born to Eber. Uh, the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, For in, uh, and his brother's name was uh, Joktan. So why in the world is all of a sudden Peleg connected to Eber, and Eber has this significant place in the lineage that he's there, and Peleg himself is said to his name, is given a name by his dad that signifies that there was something significant that took place that divided the peoples, that divided them away from each other, because uh, this is not, it's uh, all the Hebrew scholars that are looking at this, they say this doesn't have to do with like there was a big earthquake or something and the earth divided and so that's why he got his name. It's saying that there was something within society that divided the people up. In Peleg's uh, time frame when he was being born and being named that was so significant that his dad said the earth is divided, this is my son, this is division, this is Peleg, my son. And it is in the story of that between uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 32, and 11, uh, 10, which is this lineage story that's there, that we have the Babel story. And if you can define the word, the, the story of Babel in one term, it would be the term division. Oftentimes we would say it's confusion, but what was the results of that confusion? It was a division. Now what was God's last command when he, uh, uh, when he made man and woman on the earth and He said they were good and He gave them a command? What did He say? What was the first command of God to humanity? Anybody know? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, people get a little, you know, worried about the explicit nature of the Bible. God's first command to mankind was not even love one another. God's first command to mankind was go have sex and reproduce upon the earth. That's literally God's first command to mankind. And so we begin to see that happen and then we have the whole flood event and then God says again to them, go, fill the earth, be dispersed amongst the earth from this place, sons of Noah, go and fill the earth and do what I said at the beginning. Fill the earth uh, and subdue it. And they choose not to in very short time frame. In fact, according to chapter 11, verses 10 through 16, which gives us a little bit more age details of things, it's 99 years from Shem having uh, his son... Uh, to Peleg, the, the, this one who was defined as one who uh, was born in the time when the world was divided. 99 years from Shem to Peleg. That's not really a very long period of time, if you think about it. 99 years is a long time to wander, if you're just somebody walking around in places. 99 years certainly is that. Um, but 99 years is not a lot of time for stuff like language and culture to 
erupts on the world. In fact, if you uh, listen to recordings of audio that are 100 years old in our day, uh, you know, the audio is definitely not great, but the, you can understand what they're saying. They may use some different words, and they may have some different meanings of those words, but by and large, you understand what it is that they're saying and what's going on uh, in the nature of that. So, uh, you know, if you go 200 years back or 300 years back or those kind of things, it does begin to get a little bit hard. Like if you've ever tried to read an actual an actual King James Bible, not a uh, not a modern King James Bible, but one of those that actually is a 1611 one that's actually in Old English, you can't read it. It's English, but it ain't English. You know what I mean? Uh, and so there is something about language that does change if you have enough time. But 99 years is not enough time for language to transpire. And so language becomes the point of the Babylon story. These are literally cousins that are all wandering and scattering abroad. And there's at least some of them that come to this one place 99 years after they've gotten off the ark and they've had babies and they've had babies and they've had babies and here we've got this generation and there's some of those that come to this one plateau, this one place, and they decide together to say, we're done wandering. We're done done with this. We don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. Literally saying, we don't want to do what God said we were supposed to do. We don't want to do that. And so... They have, as he tells us in verse 1, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And he's saying this, I think, to tell us that words are going to matter significantly in this story. And I, and I hope you're going to see here in a moment that words are going to play something huge in relationship to injustice and, uh, and the subjugation of other people. In verse 2, he says that as there was a people, a nondescript, which which tribe was this that this came from? Or how did this work? Or this it's is it a mixing of the multiple tribes of you know of Shem Ham and Japheth as they've come? It just says a people came to this one plateau. And as they migrated to theirs, they came to the plain plain in the land of Shinar. They settled, and then he uses a a bit of an odd word. Uh, It doesn't seem odd to us, because it makes sense in the story. He says, they settled there. And again, this is one of those that you're like, okay, well fine, I, I read on from it. But in Hebrew, the word for there is Shem. Uh, It's there. Like, what is, you know... What is the name of the place where you're at? Well, it's Shem. It's there. Which is interesting because the name Shem is the word for name. Is what it means. So, when they're saying they go there, it's like the author is saying there's some of the descendants of Shem involved in this. They're going there. And we see that even later on in verse 4 when they make this statement. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. Literally again in Hebrew, it's let us make a Shem for ourselves. We don't want to be scattered across the world. We want to be able to be identified with, you know, yes, we may all be cousins, but not all cousins are the same, right? Uh, 
Those cousins come from Ham. Do you guys know the story of Ham? Do you guys know the story of when Noah got drunk and got so drunk that he went to sleep in his tent naked and his his son Ham walked in and he saw his dad naked and he just was like, oh, that's hilarious. That's Let me go tell the brothers and they're going to come and see. Ha, 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 and all this. And the other brothers, when they hear of us, they're ashamed. When Japheth and uh, Shem hear of this, they're ashamed and they throw a blanket over themselves and they walk backwards into the tent and throw it over their father so that he would not be ashamed by his actions and that they would not see his nakedness. There's all this cultural illusion in that, but it creates this burden. And even in that, you can go back and read that story. And he says that Ham is cursed because of that and he will be subjected to his brothers. There's this tear kind of relationship that is created even in this family strata that is in this place. And as they're in this uh, situation... It's like they're making this point of saying there's something about the name, there's something about Shem who is the eldest brother. He's the oldest and we think that's special. We think that's significant. Who were the people that were building Abel or that were building Babel? Well, the fact that Peleg is mentioned here and Peleg is in the lineage of Abraham, who is the father of Israel. We know that the nation of Israel, in its ancestral form, is in the place of Babel in its construction. The, from these would come the Hebrews. So there's some significance here for those reading the Old Testament that looks back on this and says, okay, this, this plays into our life. Now there's some foreshadowing here. Remember I said that language was going to be something that was going to be a a big deal in their world and a big deal that shook up uh, their understanding of this, of how God was going to be upset with them. And the author of this story gives us some foreshadowing. Do you guys know what foreshadowing is? Do you remember, go back to your literary days. What's foreshadowing? Huh? A hint of what's coming, right? A hint of, of a hint of what's something that's going to come up there. And we get our first foreshadowing in verse three, and we we totally miss it when we read it in English. It's just the honest truth of it. Verse three, he said, uh, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And you just read over that like, okay, well, they're talking about buying up, you know, you build a materialist and here it is and this is what they did. But notice what they, notice what they said here. They used two different building construction materials as though uh, they weren't interchangeable. They were saying like they use this instead of this and they use this instead of this. So if I'm talking to somebody... And, uh, and I say something like, uh, do you live in a wooden home? Depending on where you're from, you're going to interpret that differently. You might say, well, yes, I, I live in a wooden home. It has wooden studs and wooden trusses and a wooden floor and the cabinets are made out of wood and it's built out of, you know, it's built out of wood. That's what makes it. It's got plywood on it. It's built out of wood. But if the only thing you've ever seen are log homes... Your, what's in your mind is totally different than what the other person is describing when they're describing a stick-built home, a wooden home, right? They're thinking a log house, this kind of a thing, not a stick-built house, and they're totally different in their size and structure and everything else, and it's very subtle. That's exactly what's going on here, and here's the part about it. The language of it is what makes it so confusing. We read, he says... They say, come, let us bake bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. 
So in other words, brick instead of stone and tar or bismuth or asphalt instead of mortar. And the reason that this is a hint is that the word for brick and stone is levina and levene and asphalt and mortar is hemar and homer. Do you hear the similarities between those? In fact, if you said them fast enough, you might misunderstand each other. You might say, hey, you know, go get me the asphalt. And you say, hey, go get me the homer. You say, the, the what? Did you, did, you say, did you say the homer or the homer? Yeah, the homer. No, no, no. Which, which one did you say that you wanted? Yeah, yeah, go get the homer. Well, I don't, I don't understand. What are you talking about, right? There begins to be this sense of tension that's very similar. But if you go from one place to the other, if you'd say, well, what's better? What do you think is better? To have a log home, nicely built, scribed in nicely, beautiful logs and that kind of stuff? Or a framed home with brick and veneer and plaster walls and those? Which is which better? Well, I, I think this one is. Well, no, no, I think this one is. Well, I live in a wooden home. Well, no, no, I live in a wooden home. Well, what do you mean? And all of a sudden, there's this tension that exists over language. A tension of discord that exists that's in there. There's some foreshadowing in that. It's just a fla- you know, almost a, a flippant thing. It's like he's saying to people that are familiar with stone building with mortar, they didn't do what you're used to. They built with brick and asphalt. That's how they built this. So why is God so upset about what they're doing? They just they were just saying, "Hey, we're, you know, isn't it good? Shouldn't it be okay? We want to build something. We want to build something big." Was it that God was upset with them because they were going to build something that would reach to heaven and they could invade his space? Well, obviously not. They're not going to do you can build it however high you want to go. They're not going to invade God's space. They're not going to be able to build it all the way up and touch heaven to where they can bring an invading army up and conquer heaven or something. like. It's not going to work that way. God's not worried about that. Is it that He's worried that there's this technological that stone is now better than brick and that they shouldn't do that and all those kind of things? What is it about it? Is it their unity? Is it their industry? Is it their technology? What is it about this that when God sees them doing this, that He says, this can't be. This ought not be. And I think here it is. And this is as it plays to us as we talk about injustice in the world. The thing that God will not tolerate in this story is brutality through uniformity. Brutality through uniformity. He uses a word that, a word that again, we just read over and we miss it. And they say it two times in this story. In verse 3, they say to one another, Come, let us build, or let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And in verse 4, come, let us build for ourselves a city. And I don't know about your translation. Does anybody's translation after come, does it give a does it give any punctuation mark after that? Anybody have anything on there? A comma? Does anybody have anything different than a comma? There actually should be an exclamation point. After the, the come. And again, this is it's good translation because it's in the sentence. Like you don't put a you don't put end kind of punctuation in the middle of it. But the way the emphasis of the word, it's this demanding kind of a come. Not come, this is a good that's good, you know, come, let's have potluck together. Come, let's you know stack firewood. Let's, let's this is all about unity. This is actually a you're going to do this. Come. 
make bricks, build my city. And we know that because every time that word is used anywhere in the Old Testament, it's not used a ton of times, but every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in a way that is in subjugation of one that sees themselves as higher than someone else. You can see that uh, in, uh, in Exodus uh, chapter... Uh, I think it's Exodus chapter 1, when, he, when Pharaoh, it says that there was a time came when there was a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. And he says, concerning these Hebrews, come, let us deal shrewdly with these Hebrews, lest they overpower us because they're so numerous. We see this as this imperative of subjugating one under themselves. That this is not a picture of all of them together in unity like some kind of commune saying, we want to be safe. Let's, let's build ourselves a town. Let's build some walls. Let's build a tower. This will be great for us. No, no, no. This is the subjugation of a few to the rest saying, you will do this. And in fact, we see that even in the wording that they use after that, the first thing that they say is, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. There's only one other time that we actually see that, that used anywhere else in the, in the Old Testament. Does anybody else does you know where that shows up? Where does the, the firing of bricks show up anywhere else in the Old Testament? I'm, I'm, I'm really pulling on your guys' Bible trivia this morning. Where else does that show up? Let my people go. What did Pharaoh say to the Israelites after Moses said, hey, you need to let my people go. They need to come out of the wilderness to celebrate God, to offer sacrifice. And Pharaoh said, no, they're my servants. They're supposed to make bricks. And if they don't make bricks, enough bricks, they're going to be punished for it. Oh, and by the way, I'm not supplying all the materials that they need to make the bricks. They now have to supply those because you've screwed up. The making of bricks throughout all of the Old Testament was a picture of subjugation. If you've ever actually seen brick making in the world today, not, not American, like a manufacturing plant that makes bricks or those kind of things, but if you go look at brick making in India or Senegal or those kind of things, the people that are making bricks in those places, they're not doing okay. They're not people that are like middle class going to work and they, oh yeah, I'm a brick maker. And that's what, these are modern day slaves in the world today making bricks. And it's never been, it's incredibly hard work. And so this statement that is here is this subjugation of a few over others for their own purposes. And he says, as this relates to this, it is always used to assert authority over others, and brick making and brick building always equals slavery in the Scriptures. So when we're reading this, we're not reading this as a united front altogether. We're seeing the advent of slavery in Scripture. People who are saying, we want to subjugate other people for our benefit to accomplish our task, to make a Shem for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves. And God knows all things and He knows of whom His people are coming from. He knows what lineage they are from. And He knows that they're coming through that line of Shem. And God says, no. Look specifically what He says there in uh, verse 6. 
The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have the same language, and this is what they began to do now, and now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Now that word propose there, remember I said there's this language is all up in this. That word propose there, it's an okay English translation of it, but every other time it's used in the, in the Old Testament, it is plotting. It's premeditated. You guys know what the difference between uh, uh, murder and manslaughter is? Manslaughter means you, you killed somebody. And that could be by accident. You were driving and you just weren't paying attention and they stepped out and you hit them and they died and you can be charged with manslaughter. Now you did not wake up that morning and say, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to look for somebody to hit. And if you did, that would be being premeditated and it would be changed from being manslaughter to being murder. Do you see the difference between those? And that's the word that he uses here. He says, no, no, no. When we talk about purpose or purposed, it seems like unity. It seems like togetherness. It seems like that. But when you say plotted or premeditated, it has a very different feel to it. And God, when He looks at it, He says there's a premeditated nature in their heart that is not okay. And it ties in with their language. And it ties in with the fact that God said to them, I want them to scatter across the earth. And here's something that we know that is a natural phenomenon. If you scatter people away from each other, language changes. It just does. It's the way God wired us. It's the way that we're, we're literally, our brains are wired to change the way that we talk when we're not, we, we emulate those that are near us and not those that are away from us. This is why uh, if you ever listen to somebody from Australia or England or the United States, we're all speaking English, but we're not all speaking English, right? Like they're just... Uh, I, my uh, Siri on my phone is a British guy, not a lady. And so that means that there's certain words that when I'm in town it says, uh, turn right into the car park rather than the parking lot. Right? Different language. Different place because we're separated in those kind of things. And here's the thing I want you to understand. That that diversity that was going to take place was God's design. That the distinguishing difference of humanity as it scattered across the world and began to change from place to place. Change in the way that they looked from generation to generation. Change in the way that they talked from generation to generation. Change in the way that they dressed from generation to generation. By nature of God's design, it was literally what God commanded to happen. And there were some people that in this place and in this season, there were going to be of the lineage of, uh, of God God's chosen people, that they said, we don't want to be obedient to that and we're going to force uniformity. We're going to force. This isn't walls to protect us from those outside. This is walls to keep subjects in. We want to keep control of this. We want to keep power over this. They were being subjugated to one another. Their purpose was premeditated against other image bearers of God. And the plot was to produce power in uniformity. And in that uniformity, to enact brutality. To to subjugate one is to serve uh, the other. This is actually the story of Babel. 
And when God came down and He confused their language and He shifted up where they couldn't understand where they were saying, hey, why don't you go get for me the, the, uh, the Homer? You would say the Homer, the Hela, or the what? The, the, I, don't, what do you, I don't understand. What do, you, I, what do you mean? I don't understand. I can't, I can't figure it out. In that thing, God was literally forcing them away from each other to say, you are going to do what I said you're going to do. You're going to scatter. You're going to be different. You're going to go into all the world and fulfill my purposes that are there. This is the story of Babel. And it seems very strange if we're just reading along and you read the story and you're like, okay, well, there's where French came from, you know, or whatever. Not really, French didn't exist back then, just so you know. It's not, it's not the way that that worked. Not the way language works. Um, and so we say, well, what happened? They all scattered and they left their thing. So what became of Babel? The word Babel literally means uh, confusion. Blah. Blah, 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 blah. What it's, it's confusing. What, is it, what does it mean? What is it, what is it to be there? Well, the pace of Babel became something that sounds very similar to it. Anybody want to guess? Babylon. Babylon. Does that ring a bell in the biblical narrative for you? And what was Babylon? And what was Babylon throughout the rest of the Bible, Scripture? Babylon was and represented, when you read Revelation, you read anything of their actual, the actual nation of Babylon, they were a nation that set apart the authority of God for their own purposes. And their purposes existed to subjugate others in uniformity. Do you remember the story of Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were nobles in Israel, and when Babylon captured Israel and took them and took them back as prisoners back to Babylon, what did they do? to Daniel, Mishael, and Azariah. They what? Yeah, they, they went to burn them. But before they did that, that was, until, that was until later. The first thing that they did was they changed their names. Belteshazzar is what Daniel was. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are Babylonian names. Those are not their names. Their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were given a different culture's name. And they were taught to speak as Babylonians. They were taught to dress as Babylonians. They were taught to eat as Babylonians. You are not allowed to be yourself. You now become us. And that's what Babylon did. Babylon carried on the tradition of Babel. You're not allowed to be different. You have to look like us. And the subjugation of mankind and the rebellion against God has always been the model of Babylon all throughout the story of Scripture. Whether it's the actual Babylon or the eluded Babylon that is thrown out there, it's always a picture of subjugation. It's always a picture of injustice. It's always a picture of power over someone else. The kingdom that seeks to dethrone God and to subjugate or enslave man. That's what Babylon always was. Uh, when you read much on end time stuff, sometimes people will ask the question, they get really bent out there. It's like, where, why, when I read the, the end times of the Bible, I don't, I don't see America in, in, the end, you know, in the end time stuff. 
And I'm, I'm kind of concerned that I actually do. But it's definitely not called America. I think it might be called Babylon. And I think there's a lot of other world places that may be also called Babylon. Those that look at the rest of the world and say, you must become us or not exist. God was not okay with Babylon because it said something about humanity that God did not tolerate, would not tolerate. The subjugation of others around the subject of cultural change. When we think of the cultures of the world, they're vast and they're different. And it's fascinating to me because injustice is not just a white, non-white thing. It shows up all over the place. In fact, this last week, it was one of those, you know, if you saw the uh, news in Memphis this last week, there was a young man that was uh, killed by police officers uh, in, a, in a traffic stop and just horrific thing. And it was when I first heard about it, and I was just like, oh, man, there's another one, right? You know, white cop ends up killing a black guy, and it's just, just, just going to be a thing. Until I found out it wasn't a white cop. Five black cops that functionally beat to death uh, an unarmed black man, and you go, okay, well, what I, what do I do with that? And you read about in Africa the uh, Rwandan genocide, and you look at the two parties that are existed in that, and they were divided along racial lines. And if you look at them in comparative pictures none of us will see any difference. We won't see it. When you study history and you look at the uh, atrocious nature of things like the American slave trade and the Islamic slave trade, and we go, man, aren't we so glad that those days are behind us? Do you know that more slaves exist in the world today than have ever existed more slaves exist in the world right now. I know a missionary family that's working in Bangladesh. They serve in a city that has over 50,000 people that live in the city. And what constitutes the city is to live there means that you are a indentured prostitute. It's an entire this, the entire city is a brothel. They're all slaves. If you go to Senegal which was the hub of where the American slave trade, that was the hub where uh, slaves would be put onto slave ships and packed in like cordwood and brought across the ocean to the uh, United States and Great Britain and other places uh, in those things. Senegal is a haven for slavery today. Now they don't call it slavery, they call it uh, low employment, indentured employment, but it's literally teenagers that will never not be able to work for the person that they've been indentured to. They exist in the world today. When we talk about injustice in the world, it is always a matter of power over another. Does anybody know where where the last place for slavery to exist in the United States was and around roughly around when the time was of it? Anybody? We should know, because it's in our state. It's in this state of Alaska, amongst the Tlingit people, and it wasn't stopped until the 1890s. 
intervillage slavery between tribes that were there. It's always been a power thing. And the power thing has always been not about even skin color, but about difference. They were saying, we're significant because we come from Shem, the elder brother, the one that's important. We want to make a Shem for ourselves, a name for ourselves. We'll land in that place, the Shem place. That's our place. We're going to make a name for ourselves and come make bricks for us and make a name for us. Injustice has always been about power over the other, regardless of who they were. And so when we look at issues of injustice, that's the part that we have to look at. We say, how do we look and step into that and love that? When it comes to the political sphere, honestly, we just scratch our heads and we go, I don't know know how to fix it. I don't know how to fix the policing system. I don't know how to fix the legal system. I don't know how to fix the legislation. I'm going to do as I can, say what I can, and those kind of things. But this morning, we're not saying injustice in political sphere. We're not saying injustice in community opinion. We're not saying those things. We're saying injustice and the, and the gospel, race and the gospel this morning. How do we see the Bible undoing Babel? I think the most clear place that we see the gospel undoing Babel is in a place called, or an event, rather, called Pentecost. Do you remember that event? The Jesus has ascended. His disciples are hiding out. They're not being obedient to what God, Jesus said. Uh, you know, he said, "Go." Well, sorry, at that point, they already said, "Wait until the Holy Spirit comes." And uh, and he does. He comes with power, and he lights on them as tongues of fire—not actual tongues of fire, but light tongues of fire on them. Kind of like the Holy Spirit didn't turn into a dove and land on Jesus at his at his birth. It's like that. And it says, and they went out and they began to prophesy. And there were all these Jews from all over the known world because Rome had scattered the Jews across every language that existed in the Roman world. They were all from, uh, from Northern Africa and from, uh, from Asia and from as far, uh, uh, far away possibly as even Spain and those kind of places. And they had made a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And it says that as these disciples of Jesus went out, What did the people hear exactly? It says, And they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to them in their own language. It's one of the reasons why I get really bent out of shape when it comes to this the issue of like speaking in tongues of some holy chatter, blah, 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 or whatever in a, in a church service. Stuff. And it demeans the picture of Him saying, the miracle of this is these uneducated backwater fishermen from Galilee are speaking whatever the primordial soup of Spanish was fluently to be able to proclaim the Gospel. They were speaking of the dialect of Cush and of Ethiopia. They were speaking of the, the dialects of these that were coming out of modern day Turkey and uh, even you know, uh, into the northern regions of Gaul and uh, modern day Germany and France and those kind of places. They were speaking the language of the people in their own language. And the people were in awe and wonder of it. And of course we end the story of Scripture in a profound way. We end the story of Scripture with this picture of a wedding. The people gathered around the throne of Christ shouting for joy of His great goodness. 
singing that He is the Lamb who was slain. And He's worthy of praise. And it describes them very distinctly. And I think it's something that we absolutely need to value as a church. He says, around that throne, John says, I saw a multitude that no one could count from every nation, from every tribe, and from every language. There's aspects of cultural identity that make it into eternity. That's pretty profound. That Jesus will be worshipped into eternity in Swahili is pretty fascinating to me. That the prayers and love and adoration of Khan Athabascan fluent speakers will go into eternity. This is incredible. When it comes to us looking at social injustice, we have to look at it from a power injustice issue of who is over others. And not a who's right and who's wrong and all those kind of things. It's not, it's not that. It is about us seeing them as a person, loving them well, pointing them to Jesus, and acknowledging the fact that God intentionally made them to be different. I hope this is something that makes you scratch your head a little bit because if you were like me, before really digging into this, you just thought the Tower of Babel was the story of how people started speaking Chinese or something. But it's a much more robust reality of the nature of God's creative order to say, injustice, I'm not okay with it. And I'm so not okay with it. He says specifically, what were they doing? They were building a tower up to heaven. And it's, it's almost comical because God says to Himself, come, let us go down there. We're going to come down and see what they're up to. And we're going to put a stop to it because this, this can't be. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God did come down. And He did something about it in Himself. All of my acts of injustice, all of your acts of injustice, and all of the acts of injustice against us have been made right in Jesus. We may not see the fullness of that played out in this moment, but the promise is that we will. And so, we don't lose heart. We press for the, the lowly, the, the, down, uh, the downcast. We value culture. And we love people that are different than us. There is unity in diversity, not unity in uniformity. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for this word. It's a, it's a big one. And so God, I pray that You would help us to think differently about the, the nature of injustice, the, the issues of power. And Lord, help us convict us that there's moments in our own, own life where we, we want to have power over others. It's just more convenient for us. Forgive us, Lord. It's not the way that You made us. Help us to value those that are different, look different, sound different, speak different, eat different things, dress differently. They are uniquely created by You to fill the earth and subdue it. And God, we are so thankful that one day we will get to see what You intended for that to look like in Your new heaven and new earth. 
And until that day, Lord, help us to bring Your kingdom here on earth, even as it is in heaven. We love You, and it's Your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.